0: My name is Carol Coleman and you're listening to To the Point Podcast.
1: You're very welcome to the To the Point podcast with me, Kean Mantiklis, brought to you by our official sponsors at Summer Sportswear, where you can now use code Kian10, that is C-I-A-N-10. 10% 10% off all your summer products and of course you can find them on social media and at their website now on today's episode i speak to broadcast journalist and former washington correspondent she's interviewed the biggest political figures such as former american president george w bush she currently hosts a radio program this week on rt radio one and now has a new book out called news from under a coast stand which she talks all about so without further ado here is my interview with rt's carol coleman So we're going to get straight into the questions, Carol. Um, My first one is going to be, I mean, a career in media or journalism. Was it always on your mind from a young age? Did you always want to be a journalist? Did you always want to be in the media game?
0: No, and I never really knew what I wanted to be at all, to be honest. Um, I suppose when I was a young child, say, you know, eight, nine years old, I think I dreamt of being some kind of an explorer. I remember the one thing I wanted to do was live in a hotel and travel to far away places and not have to do any cooking or cleaning or any of the things that my my mom was doing. Um, but um, journalism never really came into it until probably I'd say fourth year in school, in secondary school. I went to school in um, the Convent of Mercy in Newtown, Forbes, and I was a boarder there. And as part of the fourth year program in school, it wasn't transition year. Now it was just fourth year. Uh, I was a made editor of the the paper. And uh, I remember thinking how much I enjoyed that because I discovered that I could write in a way that amused people, that made people laugh. And I, I loved that whole process of putting that paper together. So when it came time then after Leaving sir, to apply for various careers, I had journalism in the back of my mind at that stage, but I was still sort of looking at law. I thought I'd make a good lawyer because I'd done a lot of stuff on stage. I'd done musicals. I'd been competing in the Fesh and the Fla for years, thanks to my mum who who brought me along to those things. Uh, I sang, I, I played music. So I thought something with a bit of a performance aspect to it would be for me. So I applied for law thinking a barrister would be a lovely job. And I also applied for teaching and oh, I think accountancy and a few other things that my my parents thought would be more suitable. Um, and in the end of the day, I missed the law by one point. The points were just in single points back then. I think it was 22 points for law and I got 21 or something. So I was left with this option of either repeat the leaving cert or take something else. And then I remembered, well, I'd applied for journalism in rat minds. So I kind of started putting all my my hopes on that. And I went for the interview there and I got the place on the course And from that day, to be honest, I've never really looked back and never regretted that I didn't do any of the other things.
1: Yeah. And I mean, getting that course, what was that course like for yourself? Did you kind of get an introduction to journalism? Have you done a bit before that? How did you find it?
0: I hadn't done a lot. I'd written a couple of articles for the local papers Mm, and maybe one or two for Woman's Way magazine. Um, so what they taught you to do was they I suppose they gave you that access to those newspapers. We did a placement halfway through the course and my placement was in the Cork examiner. And I learned probably most of what I learned over the whole two years. I learned there at the examiner because from day one, they they made you into a reporter. You were doing markings the same as everybody else. And in fact, the first week I was there the Air India crash happened. This is a long time ago now, I'll be giving my age away, but it was 1985, uh, summer of 1985. And the Air India crash happened off the the southern coast. And it it so happened that the um, bodies that were recovered then were brought back to a morgue in Cork City. So it was a Cork-based story. That's where the world's media came to cover the story. And I remember being sent with a senior reporter to the, you know, the place where the, the the bodies were being were being kept. And we both wrote up pieces on it. I wrote up a kind of a color piece. And I remember getting up the next morning and my piece was on, I think it was the front page, it was either the front page or the back page of the paper. But it was on the outside of the paper with my name on it. And I just couldn't believe it. It was like overnight, you know, I was doing a major story. And from then on, during that placement, everything just worked a dream. They allowed me to do all kinds of things that I suggested, plus covering markings that they suggested. And I nearly didn't want to go back and finish the college course at all. I would have stayed there if they'd offered me a job.
1: Yeah. And where did you go after uh, college? What was your first kind of break into the media?
0: Well, after college, um, it was a time in Ireland of big unemployment. So there weren't that many jobs available. So I was doing a little bit of freelancing, and then my mother um, uh, sent uh, an application for a Donnelly visa in for me. And at the time, people were sent in, in applications by the 10s and 20s. It was a sort of a lottery where you could win a visa to the United States, and she sent in one, and I got it. So off I went to the States at age 21, and the first thing I did when I got there was I enrolled in a broadcasting course. Because that was one aspect that wasn't very well covered in rap minds. It was more geared toward print. And I still had this kind of hankering for the the performance aspect of things. So I enrolled in this broadcasting course. And out of that, I got a job in a radio station in Massachusetts, Lowell, Massachusetts. And it was called WLLH. It was my first job and i was um a news presenter there presenting an evening drive time show co-presenting with another presenter who was in another another city so um that was my first job and it was, it was wonderful
1: and how was your first show presenting i mean that's a whole different ball game isn't it you
0: well know, i suppose all everything really in journalism happens by accident you know there's never that much training for anything you kind of pick up things by osmosis so the man who was doing the show um, I was watching him and I was reporting for his show. And then one morning he came into me and he said, I'm really sorry, Carol. I have an appointment this evening that I have to keep. He says you're doing the show. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be doing a live show. And Kean, you just do it. You just get in the seat and you do your best. And that was my first show. And then that's always the hardest one. And of course, the most memorable. I don't think I made too many, many fluffs on that on that first show. And of course, then as soon as I got in that seat, I loved it. I've Mm. always felt very comfortable in a radio studio. I don't really know how you explain it, but I've always felt that I was at home in a radio studio.
1: Yeah. And when did you make the move back home to Ireland?
0: Um, After about two years, my mother started to worry about me because I was still young, you know, I was 23 and uh, hadn't really been home because in those days when you went to the States, you weren't flying home every three or four months or whatever. I think I was only—I don't think I'd been home at all since I since I'd gone. So I was two years gone, and my mother um, saw an advertisement in Dublin for a job in a new radio station that was being set up. It was to be the first independent radio station in Ireland. It was to be called Century Radio, and she again. My mother has a lot to uh, answer for here. She put in an application for me, or got me to apply for it. She made me apply for it, and um, I got a call at—I oh, I think it was four a.m. one morning—from the head of news, who was David Davenpower. He—he'd you know him from RTE, but he had—he had briefly moved over to to take the helm at Century Radio, and he forgot there was a time difference with America. So I got this call at four a.m., basically saying, "Could I come home for an interview?" And I remember thinking, oh, my God, that's an awful long way to go for an interview. But I said yes. And I went home and I got the job. And uh, that was my first Irish journalism job then. And as you know, Kean, after about less than two years, Century Radio closed down. Uh, it didn't work out for financial reasons. It, it ended up closing. So then after that, I kind of made my pathway, I suppose, towards RTE.
1: OK, but I mean, Century Radio was it a gamble at the time did you feel that you, had, you, you you liked it over in the states and then you made the move home was it was it a gamble
0: i don't think so because i never really intended to stay in the states full time you know i was i was young and i was enjoying myself and it was it was definitely a huge adventure you know i was working in an area where there was no other irish people it wasn't like i had a a community of people around me or anything my community was my my workmates and i was very focused really to be honest on my work and so I didn't um shy away from an opportunity to do that kind of work back in Ireland but as luck would have it I ended up again back in the States about 10 or 12 years later or so.
1: Yeah we'll get on to that and describe how you really got into RT what was the story behind it? Oh
0: my gosh I can't even Remember, I think they just advertised for journalists and because a lot of us had been basically, you know, left unemployed because of Century, um, a, a ton of us applied and a lot of us got in. I remember there was there was seven or eight people from from Century, I think, that ended up being taken on by RTE at that time. So they, they were they were recruiting big time back then. You know, they, they, they would take in ten eight ten 10 journalists at a time. Um so I got in on, on one of those. I think I joined the same day as Paul Reynolds, Dave McCullough, I think. Um oh, there's a number of names in there now that I could mention. Cassie Milner, who who has since gone on to the European Broadcasting Union. Um but the, there was a group of us that 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 joined on the same day.
1: Wow, what a what a few names. Um what was your first role in RT? I
0: was a general reporter. And I was also put doing a bit of behind the scenes editing as well. Um, because, you know, at the top of the six one news, they have the little headline where they play a little snippet of three stories. So I was set working with the editor to kind of put that little bit together in the evenings. And then I was also doing some stories. I remember one of the things that I wanted to do, I wanted to do something about suicide. Um, so I did a series of three television reports on suicide. And I think they went down very well in you know in journalistic terms there were very sad stories at the time and you know it was a time when maybe we weren't hearing so much from families who had been bereaved by suicide so that little series I think maybe got me going and then after about oh maybe about a year or so I applied for the job of environment and education correspondent and Joe Mulholland who was the head of news at the time he he obviously had great faith in me so he gave me that job so within about i say within about a year and a half of, of getting there, I, I was a correspondent.
1: Yeah, and a correspondent, how did you find that? Was it was it tough because a correspondent could get called out to a news event that's happening at five o'clock in the morning or and you have to be there to report on it? How did you find that?
0: I loved it, Keen, because I was single. Uh, I was very ambitious. Uh, I was always on the lookout for stories and I loved traveling around the country. And environment and education were two topics that took me the length and breadth of Ireland. So I remember going to Kerry, to Cork, to Limerick, everywhere to do stories. So I was more out on the road than I was in the office. And I think that's how journalism really should be. I don't think you get stories sitting at your desk that often, you know. Um, so for me, it was about being out and about. And it was a time in RTE, of course, as well, where there was really no financial constraints. So any time I suggested I'd like to go to Kerry or to wherever to Waterford to do a story, the answer was always, you know, yes, you know, if you, you go ahead and, and do it. So, um yeah, I got I think I was in that job for four years and very busy all the time. The teachers' conferences every year, I remember that, doing the the three teachers' conferences every Easter. And again, that was out on the road, just how I liked it. And there, there was um, the beginnings of the climate story were happening in the environmental brief as well. Not huge, but actually, funny enough, the one place that I was refused permission to go to was the Kyoto um Conference on Climate. And i trying to remember what year that was um i can't remember offhand but that was the one thing that i asked if i could go to that they said no we couldn't stretch that far and of course now we're all about the climate because we're we're faced with it now
1: absolutely and i mean what is a work week i'm sure a lot of people like to know of a correspondent um is it's not a monday to friday kind of job it's not a nine to five kind of job how would you kind of put it in words what is it like
0: yeah, well, as a correspondent, you are really expected to come up with story ideas. So some of the times, say, as a journalist, you're assigned something. There'll be a list of stories that have to be done every day that the editor wants covered. So you might be told, well, this is sort of in your brief, so you'll go and cover it. Um, but as a correspondent, you're always planning ahead and you, you you make your contacts list, which is really important. So say you do a story well, you gather every name that you 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 meet of, of people at that story and eventually one of them will call you and say, I have another story for you or I have an update for you or whatever. So as a correspondent, you build up your contacts to the extent that you're able to come up with stories. And that's really the role of a correspondent is to be fully briefed in your particular subject matter and to be able to come up with with stories. So it depends on what the subject is, you know, Some of the the topics will take you right through the weekend. Environment and education, not so much. But then when I did go to the United States afterwards, very much so you could find yourself working on any day of the week because you were covering, you know, such a wide area.
1: Yeah. And how did that Washington job come about? Did you get a phone call saying, Carl, the job is yours? Did you apply for it? How does it work in RT?
0: Yes, it's advertised. And it, when I went for it, Mark Little was the Washington correspondent. He was the first one. And um, I think Mark was instrumental in, in in having the Washington office set up in, in RTE. And he was the first correspondent there. It was very much, you know, his vision um, that had sort of set the ball rolling. And then I went for the job. It came up and there was a good few of us went at the time. There was definitely nine or ten, but I was the only female. And I made a lot of that at, at the interview. And plus I'd been to the States before. I knew my way around. I knew how the States worked. And, um, I, I got that job and I was very, very honoured to, to get it because as somebody said the other day, and I know they're filling the job again at the moment, you're almost like the, you're almost like an Irish ambassador in, in Washington, you know, you're, because you represent, you represent RTE, but to, to an extent, you're nearly representing Ireland out there too.
1: Yeah, it is a massive role. And you've seen people like Brian O'Donovan and Katrina Perry. They are real celebrities now in Ireland. Everyone recognises them. You know, for those years, you were obviously correspondent in the Bush years. You obviously got an interview with them. I'll get on to that a bit later. But, I mean, how do you find the merry-go-round, which is the the White House, the US presidency, the day-to-day stories? How did you cope with it?
0: Um, Grant, you know, I suppose... When I went first, I knew it was going to be hard work. But again, I was I was single and I was ready for it. I didn't have my my children or, or my husband at the time. So, you know, when you get a job like that, you know, it's going to be all consuming. But I did have hopes to go and visit places in America that I wanted to see. And I thought at weekends, maybe I would go off to, say, Savannah, Georgia or Miami Beach and Florida or just kind of quirky little places that I, I wanted to go to. So This was my idea. This will mm. be wonderful. I will work all week and then I'll go to somewhere on a Saturday and maybe stay the Saturday night. And of course, I was so exhausted by the time Friday night came that all is all I could do on the weekend if I wasn't working was catch up on sleep and just get my <laughs> own house in order. So I never got to go to any of these places, I think in year three. I finally got to go to New Orleans and Savannah each for a weekend. Three or four, I can't remember. Um, but it didn't pan out the way I thought. And I suppose you just have to be you really do have to be ready to be on duty all the time. And it's it's very exciting once you get into that merry-go-round, as you call it. You you're not really thinking about anything else. You're you're just completely dedicated to it. And I suppose the thing is, you know, that it's going to come to an end in four years. And I'd say there isn't one of us who have had the job who haven't said, could I do another, you know, a couple of years? Because it is very addicting. Um, but it is four. And that's that's the way it, it's always been.
1: Yeah. And were you based out of the office? Um, was it very much the White House? Did you spend a lot of days probably in the Washington office? How did that work?
0: Um, well, your base is the Washington office. But again, my preference was to travel out as much as possible. Mm. And the White House itself um, was interesting because the White House briefing, which is the thing that's open to the media, happens at one o'clock in the day over there. Well, at least it did when I was there, which is six o'clock Irish time. So I was always preparing something for our six o'clock news. So I would rarely actually get down to the White House unless it was the St. Patrick's Day or I might go down on a day that was quiet, but it it wasn't my sort of hangout place, and it wouldn't be for any of the correspondents that are over there um your Your base is your is your office, and then from there you're you're going out maybe up to Capitol Hill to do an interview or down to somebody in one of the many many think tanks that are all across Washington experts on whatever foreign policy or Northern Ireland or whatever it may be. So and then the travel out again of Washington to me was very important. So I constantly was plotting my next trip out of DC.
1: How did you find? You mentioned the time difference there. This, you mentioned the six o'clock uh, news here in Ireland is one o'clock over in the USA in Washington. Did that mean you have to get up quite early to prepare the stories, or do you do it the night before so you kind of get a get a start on the next day?
0: No. Well, the big the big. Um, you know, challenge for for a Washington correspondent over there is that Morning Ireland is on at 2 a.m. in the morning, your time. So what they normally used to do they, when the morning reporters or the morning presenters would come in, say at 6 Irish time, they would phone you and pre-record a piece with you. So you'd kind of be done by about 1.30. Uh, and then, yeah, you did pretty much have to be up again by about half eight, you know, out on the road at the office. Because if they wanted something for the six o'clock news, that was your one o'clock. And then the nine o'clock news usually took something. So that was your um, four o'clock. Uh, and then in the evening, you weren't really finished because you had your administration to do because you're in charge of the office as well. It's not just reporting. You're the boss of the office over there as bureau chief. Um So anything from phone bills to electricity bills to ma- maintaining things that that are need maintenance or, you know, dealing with uh, your producer or your camera person, that, that's all your job. There's nobody doing that for you. So I would typically work until f- about seven Uh, and then i'd go home and then i might watch a movie or i might take an hour's sleep and then a lot of the time then be up for one o'clock in the morning for morning ireland so that's why i slept most of the weekends Hmm.
1: talk to me about the uh, bush interview george w bush you got an interview with him before he uh, was on his state visit to ireland back in 2004 how did the interview come around and Talk to me about the process going into the White House and actually sitting down with the president. How much checks do you have to actually go through?
0: Yeah, well, the interview came about because he was planning to visit um, County Clare um, for this European summit that was being held in Ireland. And his tradition and each president is different was that when he was going to another country, he granted an interview to one media outlet in that country. So the media outlets that are represented in Washington in Ireland are pretty much the Irish Times and RTE. And uh, I put in my bid for RTE and I was very persuasive at getting people to do things. You know, I got a lot of interviews by, you know, whatever I said in the letter, or, you know, I'm pretty good at putting, putting the words together when I when I want to get something like that. So for whatever reason, I suppose maybe because it was televisual, they chose RTE for that interview. And then I would have been told uh, and told to keep it quiet and all the rest of it. Um, but from the minute I was told, I started kind of trying to put my questions together because I knew it was only going to be a 10 minute interview. So you had to be very, you know, sharp with what questions you were going to ask. So I consulted a lot of people who I respect and whose opinions I value. And um, I, I remember telling somebody at the time, I even asked taxi men, You know, in Washington, if you had a chance to interview the president, what would you ask him? I literally asked everybody, you know, (laughs) Uh, and then I kind of sat down and put my my topics together um, with some consultation, obviously, with my with my colleagues. And then the day came myself and my producer went in and we went through all the usual White House security. We were brought into a lovely room. I think it was called the library room or something. I'm not sure we had I'd never been in there before. So it was kind of beyond the press area. And, uh, then we were, there was a lot of people, you know, handling us, I suppose is the right word, and, uh, speaking to us and telling us that the president will be coming along in whatever 20 minutes, but you'll be in there seated before he arrives. And, and then I had um, one particular handler who, who was telling me, um, suggesting questions that I should ask the president. And I remember thinking that was a little bit odd because the questions were very fluffy. Uh, she she suggested or he I can't remember now that I asked President Bush about the color of Bertie Ahern's trousers at a G7 summit a week earlier. Apparently, he wore some kind of yellow suit and it came out very yellow in the photographs. And I was just kind of a bit perplexed by this because I was thinking, well, that's not the type of interview I'm planning to do here, you know. Yeah. Um, so I suppose when we got into the interview, then it became obvious that I was going to push him on on certain questions. And I don't think they really expected that I was going to do that. So that's how that interview became, I suppose, known and and, and studied.
1: Exactly. And it's this very famous interview. Yeah, you did give him a good grilling. It does take a lot of guts to sit in front of the president and start grilling him. Did you plan t- to go down that route? Did you just go down that route? Because he was very argumentative back. You know, anyone can watch the interview back. It's on uh, YouTube, as I did today. Uh, did you find that a bit? Were you nervous going into it, the actual interview beforehand, and when he started coming back, you did it? Did it kind of become a bit easier?
0: Yeah, no, I would have been nervous in my own way, nervous but confident, um, because I, my questions, what I what I had done was rather than having to look down all the time, I had memorized my questions in the order that I was going to ask them. But as you said yourself, the interview kind of took on a life of its own because. Well, I did start on a bit of a negative. I remember saying to him initially, you know, that our president and our, our prime minister will welcome you when you get to Ireland. But unfortunately, a lot of our people won't because of the X, Y and Z that was going on. So I suppose maybe that set a bit of a negative tone from the beginning. But then he proceeded to to justify, you know, what, what we were talking about, which was the invasion of Iraq and the, the the Abu Ghraib scandal and all the rest of it, he proceeded to go into a very long defense of that. And then I was trying, I was very cognizant that I only had about 10 minutes here. And I thought, well, if I just let him, him speak, um, you know, telling us what we already know, the interview is going to be over before I ever, go, ever get to ask anything. So I tried to interject a few times. And then there was the famous, let me finish, you know, you'll ask the questions and I'll answer them. But funny enough, I heard it back myself the other day because a radio host played it to me. And, uh, I was actually thinking if, if I was doing that interview now, I probably would have pushed back a bit more. I was actually yeah. quite polite. I thought in, in, you know, as soon as he'd say, let me finish, I'd back down. Whereas I think if it was now, because I'm used to the Irish style of interviewing again, I probably would just, you know, go ahead and, and get my question out. Whereas a good few times I, I sort of got half out and then stopped because he he did he wanted me to stop. So, but, you know, that only comes with with experience.
1: Yeah. And I mean, did you get a lot of backlash after that within the, you know, were the White House a bit precarious of letting you in again for other interview? Were they best, you know, wary of of that you could push him again?
0: Ah, no, no. You mean you were never going to get a second interview with the president anyway? To get one was was hmm. was pretty amazing. You were never going to get that chance again. But but I remember they were that the I suppose the consequence of it was that they had told me before the interview that if it went well, that I would get another interview with Laura Bush, yeah. and I I would have loved to have interviewed Laura Bush. I very much admired her. Um, but afterwards they made it clear there wouldn't be any interview with Laura Bush. So that was the, I suppose, that was the consequence of it. But in terms of no, no, I didn't. Um, I mean, they, I was never excluded from the White House or anything like that. Um, And there was a very mixed reaction to it. You know, most people were very supportive because they felt that those questions needed to be asked and that it took an outsider who wasn't a, a, an American journalist to ask them. So that was very comforting to me. And then there was, I suppose, a side of people, as there always is, who just thought, that I was downright rude and that I should never have interrupted a president. So there the were the two sides. But by and large, I, I felt that I was very supported in, in, in how I'd
1: handled it. So Would that have been your highlight of your time as Washington correspondent or what would have been?
0: Well, it depends. I mean, it's definitely the part that people associate with me. I will still meet people. And this is so many years later now. That was 2004. So we're talking about, you know, 17 years later, I will still meet people who say, I loved your your interview with George Bush. And I'm thinking, God, it's so long ago. So in that sense, it was the highlight. But I suppose in terms of stories that I enjoyed doing most, I I don't think so. And then, of course, 9-11 happened when I was there as well. So, you know, again, I wouldn't call it a highlight, but it was extremely memorable. Um, If you're looking for highlights, I would pick maybe smaller little stories that I did down on the. Mexican border, you know, things where, where you kind of thought, God, I never thought in my life that I'd be here covering a story like this. So, so they to me would be, I suppose, highlights or the people I met, you know, when I traveled across the country, you know, just doing Vox Pops, which are usually kind of maligned. and Journalists don't really enjoy doing them that much. I love Vox Pops because you meet the people and you hear the funniest things and you hear the strangest things and you hear the truest things and they teach you uh when when they speak to you and americans are very honest when they speak to you they don't hide what they're meaning to say they tell it like it is so for me meeting the people were the highlights
1: okay do you still uh, follow u.s politics closely do you still give a great interest to it even now
0: I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other half of my family is American. My husband is American. So I have a a, a half of my family that is American. So in fact, today um, I'm we're citizens as well. Um, I got a, a voting ballot in the mail for the mayor of Annapolis, which is where we used to live. So, I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to be voting, but I do vote in the presidential <laughs> election. Um, so, yeah, definitely following the politics. Um, it was tough to follow, I have to say, during the Donald Trump years because it was so much of the same happening night after night you know and the tweeting and the and the strange remarks and the and the I suppose that move to to the to the right that we all witnessed um but but very interesting so to answer your question I do follow it yeah
1: and what did you make of him as an individual and as a president
0: I'd love to interview him I'd love to meet him um you know what I I find him complex. I, I don't think he's uh, a simple man to, to describe. Uh, he was obviously a successful businessman and he, he clearly got what he wanted a lot in life. And I think when it came to the presidency, I don't know, I suppose he was speaking to his own base a lot of the time. And I suppose what I want to know more about is how he came to those beliefs, whether he actually believed them or whether he was just doing it to kind of stir up what they call the base. I don't really know, having read books about him, I'm not really sure what his true feelings are or his true, his true ideas. I know he did feel for a long time before he ever entered politics that America was being ripped off by the rest of the world financially and militarily because um, he had spoken about that before taking all our jobs, flooding our country with cheap goods, um, expecting us to do all the dirty military work. So I can fully understand why people voted for him. Fully understand it. Um, but I'm not really sure <laughs> why he had to take it to such limits that he did, if you if you get my meaning. Yes.
1: Especially with um, after the election. Uh, and just on that, what did you make the election? And also, what are you making of the President at the moment president biden
0: well it's kind of been quiet hasn't it because i suppose we were all so used to the onslaught of 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 you know news and tweeting and comments from 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 the previous president that that uh, joe biden is either being quiet or is not being covered to the same extent i suppose we can't discount the fact that the media circus has, seems to have taken a bit of a break since Donald Trump um, went off to Florida. And you do get senses of it coming back every time he mentions that he's running again. Um, so I think that the media treat Biden completely differently. Um, they're not keeping watch on, on every word that he says. How is he doing? Um, I think Afghanistan was a, a, this is only a personal a personal opinion. I think it was a terrible mess. I was quite shocked to see what happened. Um, so I don't know whether I'd give him high marks or not. I, I, I honestly can't say. I think he needs more time to to to, to sort things out. Okay.
1: And I asked Bernard O'Donovan this question. I'm going to ask you the same. Will Donald Trump run in 2024?
0: Well, I honestly don't know. Um, I did speak to a pollster down in Georgia. Uh, right after the election. It was the night after Joe Biden was declared the winner. And he was uh, the Republican pollster that predicted Donald Trump's win um, the first time Mm round. And he thought he was going to win the second time round as well. And I was kind of asking him, you know, what went wrong and all the rest of it. But in terms of the future, we spoke about that. And he told me that Donald Trump is the only member of the Republican Party that is basically worth a billion dollars in contributions. He said the name of Donald Trump had the ability to bring in a billion dollars in contributions to the Republican Party. So what he was saying to me was that Trump is still the Republican Party in America. So if that is the case, the evidence would seem to suggest that he will run again. Uh, But apart from that, I don't know more.
1: But how does he do it? You know, how does he, I guess... You know, spot out that uh, fan base of his that he done through so effectively through social media, which we've never seen a president do before. He's launched his new social network. But I mean, the way he done it back in 2016, the way he used Twitter and the likes of that in his presidency was unheard of. And did, what would you say, benefit him?
0: Yeah, it did. And that's what I mean about the media circus. Like if the media circus were to go and follow him as, as soon as he says I'm running. Mm. Well, then they're going to do the job for him, aren't they? Because they're going to give him the platform.
1: That's how it works. But do you think they will this time? I do. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But I mean, because but I mean I, CNN I,
1: I... would have come out and late night shows like Jimmy Kimmel and late night with Jimmy Fallon said they regretted having him on, they regretted him giving him the airways because they created a monster in the end that they couldn't control. And he, to a large extent, through a lot of media coverage from CNN and all those late night talk shows, was... Became the president of the United States, and yet their words.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it'll, it will be interesting to see how the how the media does react to it if, if he does say that he's he's going again. Because I suppose for a lot of media corporations, well, the bottom line is it's about viewership, and it's it's about money. I suppose it depends what what mood the American people are in, having come through COVID. I would imagine that an awful lot of people feel that because of the president's slow reaction to covid the former president's slow reaction to covid and remember he didn't want to wear a face mask and he called the whole thing a hoax and it was a media hoax and the whole thing about the drugs and and drinking the bleach and everything I think there'd be a lot of people over there who feel that maybe some of their some some family members were lost because of the slow reaction of the president so maybe there won't be that that support for him again but you kind of do wonder Republicans don't just go away and they're not going to turn toward, um, the Democrats for, for support because it's so split over there that there's very few will, will, turn, will swing over. And the swing, the swing is usually where the, the election is decided. Um, it's, it, it's almost like it's screaming out for a third way. And I know Brian has talked about this as well. Brian O'Donovan, that there's such a huge gap there in America right now for a third way. and and some new characters and some new personalities to to fill the void. I think there's a big void in in American politics right now in terms of people who are willing to step up to the plate and put themselves forward.
1: Yeah, and briefly, I do want to move on. Will Biden run for second term?
0: No, I don't think so. No, I think he's, um, to be honest, I think it's an age issue. Mm. Um, I know he said at the beginning, or some of his family said, I remember on inauguration day that he he he'd go the whole eight years i don't see it um he has slowed down you know considerably he seems to be handling things very well at the moment but he's is he even a year into the job he's not so he's got another 3 years to go and it has to be extremely tiring and also i was thinking the other day extremely limiting for somebody you know when they come to the end of their lives they want to spend time with family the way he's got grandkids he's got he's got family members and you can't just take off you know you can't just say okay i'm going out now for a meal with my with with my family or whatever everything has to be organized and security and everything so i i wouldn't think he he would to be honest
1: okay now, I want to talk about your your current role, your presenter on this week' programme on RT Radio 1. Can you just describe to people what you do there and how do you find it yourself?
0: Yeah, it's a lovely programme. It's the oldest radio current affairs programme in Ireland. So it, it's I think it's 53 years old at the moment. And it was set up by Mike Burns and Sean Dignan back in the day uh, when Northern Ireland and the Troubles were kicking off. And they the two of them got together and they set up, they had a vision to kind of change news from just being newscaster news, which was which was what RTE had at the time um, bulletins. They wanted to do programs and discussions. So they set up on the same day they set up this week, the News at One and World Report. And I'm now working on two of those programs and working on this week and World Report. So I feel like I'm kind of standing on the shoulders of giants, if you want to say it like that. And um this week is a great program because you get a bit of time to plan it. So if you're doing a package, you have a couple of days to go around and get your interviews. And then also the top politicians and the party leaders, they know that it's a place where they can get, you know, a ten or twelve minute interview, sometimes more, sometimes sometimes fifteen, twenty. So we do tend to to get the, you know the top people and right throughout covid it was so obvious i mean every sunday we had um a minister you know a person from the hse maybe tony holohan or ronan Glynn. so we kind of think it's a place where where the people who matter stop you know
1: yeah absolutely and i mean what would a normal sunday be like for you presenting are you working from home at the moment but kind of before that uh you would obviously go into orty would you
0: yeah, well, I'm I'm part time now, so I start working. Usually, we have a meeting on a Wednesday, which I which I attend virtually, and then from Thursday afternoon to Sunday afternoon, I'm I'm full on. So I might, if I'm doing a package, I'm based in Leitrim, Carrick and Shannon. I might travel out from here, and a lot of the time, go west or or north, you know, to get the regional viewpoint. Um, uh, or I might go up to the office and work from there. Before COVID, I usually worked up in the office and kind of worked from that base. Then say March 2020, in about the middle of March, we were given broadcasting equipment in our homes. Now, all I got to have to say was an iPad and an iRig mic, and I didn't even believe you could do the live broadcast with that, but it worked. So I set up this little studio for myself underneath the coat stand in my, in my front foyer here, and uh, I did the live show from there. So at the time, in it involved just, you know, getting on the phone ring people for interviews um uh, my colleague Justin McCarthy gave me this little 6 inch cable that I was able to attach from my iPad or phone into my recorder machine so I could phone people up on FaceTime audio WhatsApp audio get nice quality uh do my interviews that way and then cut them together for they uh, say the package in the program so you know it didn't really stop us doing anything covid but i suppose It's lovely to meet people face to face. And that's what you don't get to do when you're doing the interviews on the phone. So I'd say, you know, journalism does suffer through not meeting people face to face. But technologically, it's all possible to do. So say on a Sunday morning, I go out and get the papers. I look through the papers while I'm having a bit of breakfast. Then I set up my apparatus. And then at about 10, we have a meeting And we discuss, you know, what we have on our our list of items and our interviewees and what questions we should ask them, you know, based on if there's anything new in the papers. And then we record our, you know, our billboard then at about 12 or half 12. And we're constantly in communication with each other, even if we're not in the same room. And uh, then on air air, one o'clock and sure, it's a great program. It goes by in a flash. It's, It's just an hour and there's two of us on it. So we hand back over and forward to each other. And um, most mostly the interviews we do make news then for the next 24 hours. So the papers will take up, you know, what the minister said on this week or RT News will do a piece on what, what so-and-so said on this week. So we kind of set the agenda for that in, into Monday morning. And that's very satisfying.
1: Yeah. And do you find it enjoyable? I mean, one program on a Sunday and you can do your little pieces during the week. Do you find it, you know, enjoyable in that sense?
0: It is, you know, it's very different to how I would have worked, Kian, when I was in an America and that, you know, I'm, I I have kids now and I have other responsibilities. So, you know, it's it's not the, the constant, you know, focus yeah. on, on, on news and that. But I do, I would listen to an awful lot of radio during the week. You know, radio is my, is my companion. And, um, you know, so keeping up with the news, you have to keep up with everything, obviously, if, even if you're just doing that one program a week. But it's... Um, it's 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 a great spot i absolutely love it now i've been doing it for for three years and i have to say i i absolutely love it and world report is is a nice program too you know because you get to commission reports from anywhere in in the world really for that
1: Hmm. and i want to move on to your new book news from under the cold stand you mentioned it there can you just describe to people what is the book about and what urged you to write the book
0: Well, it's a diary of March to June 2020. So no prizes for guessing what it's about. (laughs) So I was always a good diary keeper, like for Mm. big events, um, big news events. I would have had a diary in Washington and in important parts of my life. I I always had a diary and I'd get one every year. I would buy a diary and literally stick it now on the bedside table. But when this started off, uh, I kind of knew it was going to be big. My husband is a medic and he was following it, too. And I started writing down things that were happening in the news and things that I was covering every day um, on the computer, like, you know, day by day. And then, of course, when the place started shutting down, I kept a very good record of all the stories I did, the people I interviewed. Uh, and then I started adding in what was happening in our own home, because, you know, I have, I have two teenagers and they were in sixth class and first year at the time, two girls. And of course, on March the 12th schools closed they were sent home every parent in the country had the same thing homeschooling at home and you know then we had the 2k limit and we had essential shopping only and all these things that a lot of us have already forgotten I wrote something about it every day like a little story of what I did or what happened in the house here or what happened around the town with the businesses you know as they started to close and um, I just kept going then on to the last day in the diary is June the 12th. It was a few days after the shops had reopened. And of course, to, to a lot of us, that was that was big when the, when the shopping came back up. Um, and I kind of felt to keep it going any longer than that would have been a bit too repetitive because then, you know, we came out of that first lockdown. And sure, like within a couple of months, we were back in the second lockdown. But I make it clear in the book that this is just a period in time. And it's there's seven billion versions of the story because everyone in the world who was alive at that time has a version of of the COVID pandemic. And it's my version. But I'm hoping that people will read it or keep it maybe for 10 or 15 years and then read back and see what was going on, you know. Yeah. Because when you're living in history, sometimes you don't really realize how significant it is. You know, all the books that we read about history, about wars and that, I often wonder, do the people who lived through them, did they realize the high significance of it at the time? So for me, it was a real opportunity to be inside a story instead of on the outside looking in, which I would be normally. You know, you'd always be rushing to the scene of something after it happens or covering the aftermath of, say, nine eleven or whatever. But this, you were kind of in the story as well as covering it. So in a way, I just kind of turned the microphone literally in my own house here you know um the stuff with the kids in it there's stuff with my husband um my friends my parents who were cocooning um people who i spoke to for interviews uh you know all kinds of nurses bus drivers a- anyone who i spoke to is literally in this book so half of ireland is in the book and it's <laughs> it's lively but it's it's done in a way that really you know, also takes cognizance of the fact that it was a very sad and lonely time for people. So I'm I'm hoping it'll it'll um it'll remind people of of
1: of what we we've, we've gone through. You know, absolutely, and I'm sure people will will read it back as you said in a couple of years' times so and just realise the uh, to the extent of what did happen. And um, I want to ask you about the process of actually um, producing this book. He just described the process. I asked last week, uh, Damian Lauder, he's a new book coming out fairly shortly and he just described the process of writing a sports book. What's it like to write an actual book and you set a target each week, you're getting 5,000 words down. You, you had a diary there. How did you compile all those diary pieces into the one book?
0: Yeah, well, what I did was like, I wrote my diary sequentially. So on my computer, I literally had date after date after date. And then what I did was, um, I went back and think, okay, well, I don't need all of this, you know, and people who are reading it don't need to hear all of it either. So I just kind of selected, I suppose, you know, the bits that, that I thought would be of, of interest and, and entertaining. Uh, and then I kind of just put, you know, a bit of literary shape on them. Because when you're doing a diary, it's kind of, you know, you, you write your rough bit and then you kind of go back and you. So I, I put it, put, it, as I say, a bit of literary shape onto it. And then I was kind of doing it and then days that I wasn't doing it. But I tried to do a bit every day after after dinner. I go and work on it for, say, a couple of hours. And I I just enjoyed it so much because even when I was reading back on, say, like last October, if I go back and read about what happened in March, I was going, God, did we really go through that? And I remember that day and it was enjoyable doing it. I never got bored with it once. And then, to be honest, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with this diary, I thought I'd do it for friends and family and do uh, self-publish and get a couple of hundred copies um, done. So that's the the road I went down. Um, So I contacted a self-publishing company, uh, Orla Kelly in Cork, and she sort of talked me through it. And I knew then when I spoke to her that I wanted to do this myself, that I didn't want to go to a publisher with it. I had done books with publishers before, but because I wanted to involve my family in it, and I wanted to see the other side of the publishing business. I decided to do it myself. So when I had it all then kind of in shape and I took loads of breaks and then went back to it. And then I met um, a particular man here in town. I went to tell him one day, I said, I hope you don't mind you're in my book. And, and he asked me about it and he said, oh, you need to get that out. You need to get it done. So because of what he said, funny enough, the you know, one comment from somebody I went home and I really leathered into it for about the last 10 weeks, which is like the pre the 10 weeks up to up to now. Yes. And um, then once we had it, you know, in good shape, uh, went off to be formatted by the self-publishing person. Then uh, a local printer printed it. A big truck arrived here at the house with two pallets full of books. Hmm. They're sitting out. Some of them are out in the garage and some of them are in the, in the dining room and literally every day I've been getting boxes out the door into shops. Uh, I'm only doing independent bookstores. Uh, I didn't go near Eason's or Argosy or any of the big distributors because my mum used to own an independent bookshop here in Carrick and Shannon and we've always supported and loved independent shops. So I spent a day in your neck of the woods over in Castle Books in Castle Bar. I was in the bookshop in Westport and in McLaughlin's Books in Westport. And they couldn't have been nicer, and that's why I'm doing it that way. I'm not doing any of the big the big you know what 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 you might call big sales places. I'm doing the small places and just getting the fun out of it and my daughter did the Ill- illustrations for it, and my other daughter, I call her my distribution manager, and my husband <laughs> has literally carried me and the code stand across the finishing line, so it's just it's just the most amazing experience. And I would recommend it to anyone who thinks they have a book in them to do it.
1: Yeah. And tell me about the title. Is it that literal? Is it, did you present the news from under your coat stand?
0: I did, yeah. <laughs> it's this big mahogany beast of a thing that's in the front foyer here. Because you know yourself there as a broadcaster, you have to have a room that's not echoey. So you want to have the right furnishings. So the place that I went is carpeted and wallpapered. But what I did was I dragged the coat stand over to the side of the table and kind of wrapped all the coats around to make a little cocoon and then put up a few cushions and things. And like loads of people said to me, they never knew I wasn't in studio, that it sounded that good. So that coat stand was necessary. You know, all those big wo- woolly winter coats kind of kept the, you know, the echo out of the place. So that's, I wanted to call it that. Um, I thought I liked the idea. And then my daughter just drew a beautiful, code stand for me you know she went out yeah. to the hall and drew it and i said i have to use this you know so that's that's how it came about
1: and as a family you kind of look back in that book and said we all played a part in it
0: exactly yeah it's our family yeah. book and we're very proud of it it's come out looking lovely and uh, it's out there in the shops now so independent shops also books.ie and gifts.ie um that's where you'll
1: find it so brilliant brilliant and I want to finish off with a quick fire round. So I'll start off with my first question on the quick fire round. Who is your favourite broadcaster or journalist?
0: Oh, my God, you've got me there. <laughs> favourite broadcaster or journalist. OK, I'm going to say Anya Lawler because she's done it so well for such a long time. And I still admire her and I still learn something from her every time I listen to her or watch her.
1: Brilliant. What's your favourite pastime?
0: my kids it's doing anything with my kids yeah. yeah whether it's just going you know out for a walk and a bar of chocolate or whatever but yeah my kids
1: hmm. tea or coffee
0: uh, totally tea
1: berries or lines berries berries uh, biggest advice to young broadcasters and journalists
0: uh, contacts book and I've told you this before yeah. get your contacts book write down every name of everyone you meet along the way and no matter what story comes up you'll be able to say i know somebody who knows something about that and you'll go to your contacts book and you'll and you'll have somebody who you can call it is just it's what makes journalism work you know um the whole presentation thing about it looking good on tv or whatever that's a whole other area of it but if you just want to do solid journalism contacts book
1: absolutely favorite tv series
0: oh gosh um borgen we loved borgen yeah mm.
1: yeah And what's your favourite current one?
0: What are we watching at the moment? Let's see. Series. God, I'm not big into series as keen, to be honest. But um, I don't know. We don't have Netflix in our house. Um, We're probably one of the few who don't. So we we still, my husband curates anything good on terrestrial television. But uh, I don't know, to be honest. I haven't watched any of the popular series that most people watch. So I can't answer that.
1: (laughs) Okay. Uh, Who's your favourite RT colleague?
0: well i have to I have to say this because it's today, okay um Charlie Bird was a colleague of mine for a long time, and as you know today there's sad news that he has been diagnosed with motor neuron disease, so because of that, I'll say Charlie Brilliant.
1: if you're to have any five dinner guests dead or alive, who would you invite? Five dinner guests, is it yeah. Okay,
0: I would invite, um, let me see now who I would invite. You're really putting me on the spot here now. Uh, I would invite the actor, Morgan Freeman. I would invite the singer, Dolores Keane. I would invite, um, what's her name? Charlie D'Amelio. I think she's one of the biggest uh, um, online stars at the moment uh, Mm -hmm. for the young people. I would want to invite her. I would also want to invite, uh, oh, for the crack, I'd have Jennifer Aniston and I'd also throw in there, let me see, what's his name? Um, Tommy Tiernan.
1: Tommy Tiernan, brilliant. What a like. Yeah, yeah. And last question, describe yourself in three words.
0: I um, am hardworking I am a lot funnier than people think because my (laughs) kids are laughing at me all the time but I do kind of keep that side of myself to home and I am very happy I'm never unhappy I am a really happy and content person
1: Brilliant Carol Carol Coleman thanks very much